be seated. If you have your Bibles, our scripture reading for today comes from 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be reading verse 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, these uh, words were written by the Apostle Paul, but they come to us today under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and therefore they come to us with, with authority, with power, is the same kind of authorities of Jesus himself we're speaking. So let's hear together as I read aloud the word of Christ. Second Corinthians 5:17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I said when we started this series that there, there were two questions that every Christian had to answer, had to at least think about. First question is, who is Jesus? The second question is, what is the church? And we've been saying throughout the series that a lot of people haven't thought deeply about that second question, what is the church? Uh, we've been saying, uh, we've oftentimes uh, misdefined the church. The church is not a building, right? It's, it's not primarily the place that we meet or the building that we meet in. Uh, the church is not an event, right? The church is not simply the gathering of the people who are called out in Christ. Uh, it's not, it, that, that is not the church. That's a part of the church. It's a gathering of the church, but the church is not primarily an event. The church is not primarily a leader, right? The, the church is not primarily a brand. The church, the local church, are a people who have been called out by Christ in an area to make him known, join together in a covenant with one another. And so we've been defining who this people is and, and what this people is like, these people who've been called out. We said that we are a people who believe, right? We're, we, we, the reason we have been called out, the reason we are joined is that we believe something together. We have entered into a new story. We're a part of a new narrative, and we're not just people that believe, we're people who attest. We have said, and we said in the second week of the series, <clears throat> that we're a people whose lives uh, are changed because of what we believe. Our lives attest to something. Our lives are different because of what we believe. We said last week that we're a people who gather, right? Because we have a common covenant, because we are a people who come together in a common life, we, we love one another, we don't forsake one another, we're committed to the congregation. Our church experience, again, is not about just receiving a good sermon or a good song, a good Christian product. No, but it's about being 
a people, being with one another, stirring one another along as we grow up together into the fullness of Christ. But today, I want to talk about kind of the final thing that we're going to talk about. And we could keep going on this series. There's so much to talk about in the church. But the the final sermon of this series, I want to talk about us as a people who scatter. We're people who gather. We're also a people who scatter. Again, I think this is probably the main misconception of the church, that this is church, the gathering. But you are no less a member, a part of the church when you, in a few moments from now, scatter from this place. And I think that if you'll understand who you are in Christ like that, it will revolutionize your life. We are a people who gather and we're a people who scatter. And so I want to spend some time today actually going back to the other question we haven't really talked about in this series that much, who is Jesus? Because understanding who Jesus is, and, and maybe more particularly who we are in Jesus, will dramatically define, determine, direct who you are, who we are when we scatter. And, and I think we can talk about this passage uh, in kind of one major idea. Let me, let me give you a sentence. We are a people <coughs> who have been reconciled to God, and who are called to help others reconcile with God. We are a people who have been reconciled to God and who are called to help others, to to help reconcile others with God. So I'm going to talk about this in two parts. Let's talk about the first part. Who is Jesus and what has Jesus done in our lives as we think about the fact that we are a people who have been reconciled to God. That is, a, that is a big thing to believe. That is a big thing uh, to say. I grew up in a very kind of revivalistic church. Uh, and so, you know, it was before my, my dad was really a pastor. The church, he was on staff at a church. And it was a very, it was a great church. It was a wonderful church. I'm grateful for the church. But it was, it was, a, it was a church where it was, it was very re- revivalistic. There was a lot of talk um, of needing to make a decision for the Lord, and, and particularly needing to make a decision to the Lord to avoid hell. Uh, this was kind of a big part of my childhood. And again, all these things are true. Uh, we, we do stand before God in sin, separated from him, without hope. Our only hope is Christ. Uh, but that was kind of the, the ethos of that church. There was, you know, pretty much every sermon uh, the, the preacher would say, you know, if you were to die driving away from here, you'd have died tonight. Do you know where you'd spend eternity? Um, and then, you know, they'd always say, if, you, if you'll pray this prayer with me, you can have confidence that you'll spend eternity with God. And in this kind of a church, the way that I maybe primarily understood Jesus is that Jesus is the one who can save me from hell. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who can save me from hell. Now, as I grew up, I, the, the preaching that I listened to as I got a little older, uh, talked about Christianity as if uh, Christianity was something that was very practical and helpful. It was a little bit of a different message. It, it, it basically said, look, there's a lot of practical wisdom in the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of things in Scripture that can really help you live a better life. They, they can help you make better decisions, help you be wiser, help you in your business, help you with your marriage. And so as I kind of grew and started listening to that, 
uh, kind of preaching, that the main way maybe that I understood Jesus was Jesus is helpful, right? And again, that's true. There, there is a lot of practical wisdom in scripture. Uh, there, there are a lot of really great things to gain by understanding the Bible. But, but is this how we're supposed to mainly think about Jesus? Jesus can save you from hell. Jesus can help you in this life to have a better marriage or make better decisions or do better in your job. Is this, is this how we're primarily supposed, supposed to understand who Jesus is? And I think this is where this passage is so helpful. It, it really helps us understand this first question, who is Jesus? And again, maybe more precisely who we are if we really know Jesus. You see, the problem with a lot of the preaching that I was hearing when I was younger is that it basically said, look, there are a lot of benefits to you if you have Jesus in your life. There's a lot of benefits to you if you have Jesus in your life or in your heart, maybe as some people said. If you want to be saved from hell, if you want to have a better afterlife, you need to have Jesus in your life. Or if you want to live a better life now, if you want to make better decisions and have some practical wisdom now, you need to have Jesus in your life. But the more I study the Bible, if we actually study the Bible, it, it describes who we are with Jesus less as having Jesus in your life and more as being someone who is in his life. And I think that's an important distinction that we should understand if we're actually going to be serious about what the scripture says. Notice this text. It says, if anyone has Jesus in their life, he is a new creation. No, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You notice the difference there. And I think this is, has a lot to understand about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in Christ. See, I think it's easier to understand having Jesus in your life, right? If Jesus is in your life, he can bless me. He can lead me. He can save me. He can help me. But what does it mean for us to be in him? And again, you might say, I don't know if the New Testament says that. Just read the New Testament. You don't really hear a lot of Jesus in you. You hear Jesus me in Jesus. So let's look at this passage. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This can teach us a lot about what does this mean for us to be in him? The old has passed away. So first in Christ, there is a sense where if you're really in Christ, you have passed away. To be a new creation, there's a sense where you die. And again, this is not the only place we see this in the New Testament. There's a couple of famous passages. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. You could almost say, I've been crucified in Christ. In the crucifixion of Jesus, I was crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So being in Christ, there's a sense where in the death of Christ, you have died. Colossians 3, it says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. For you have died. And you could kind of add, this is not in the passage, but I think this is the idea Paul's getting at. You have died in Christ, in the death of Christ. You have died in Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you are in Christ, you have died. Now, what does that mean? Augustine and Martin Luther talked about this idea a lot that has been very helpful to me. They've talked about the self or the nature of sin as being uh, in curvatus in se. It's a Latin phrase. And, and, but it's a helpful, I like the word, incurvitus, insay. And the idea of the phrase is this, that the self, the heart in sin is turned in on itself. There's an energy that is like curved back towards itself. That's not meant to do that. It's incurvitus insay. It, it's, this, it's this energy that goes away from us, that's supposed to go away from us, that it boomerangs back in to the self. Luther said this, our nature by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God toward itself and enjoys them as is plain in the work righteous and hypocrites or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. The nature of sin is this, is that you would use all of the things that God has given you, all of the gifts that God has given you, even your relationship with God himself for the sake of self. That is incurvitus in say. Now, you've heard me say this before, but I think it's worth repeating here. The, the most natural thought that you have, the first thought you have, you know, this is um, Descartes, right? I think, therefore, I am. The, the most natural thought you have is, I exist. All right? The, the first thought you have is, I am. I exist. But here's the, the truth that I'm going to tell you. We are so off base. Sin has so messed us up that your very first thought actually leads you to an improper thought. It leads you to think, the first thought I have is I exist, therefore I see everything through me. It leads you to kind of believe that you are the most important person in the whole universe. And you know that. You know cognitively, right, that that's not true. Like you understand that the universe is more important than just you. But, but how we live, where our energy goes, it's always curving back in on our stuff. It's always curving back in on the self. You know, so I've said before, I don't think it was this way before sin. I think Adam and Eve actually rightly understood God first. They were more aware of God than they were of themselves. And, and again, I've said the, one of the reasons I believe this is because they didn't even know that they were naked, right? You have to be really unself-aware to be naked and not realize it, right? That their, their heart, their mind was rightly set on God before it was even set on themselves. That's actually how you were made to be. 
A tree doesn't primarily exist for the glory of itself. It exists for the glory of God. The the skies, they're proclaiming the glory of God. Saturn doesn't exist for the glory of Saturn. No, it exists for the glory of God. It's a declaration of God's glory. And you, even you and me, we were made in the image of God. What does that even mean, to be made in the image of God? It means this, that you have an incredible capacity to reflect back to God his image, something that is true about him, something that is right about him. Don't you see? A, A mirror has no glory by itself. The glory of a mirror is in the thing that it's reflecting. And this is who God made you to be, to be mirrors, to rightly reflect him. But don't you see what we've done? We've put ourselves. this is in curvatus in say, that we've put ourselves on the other side of the mirror. We said, hey, reflect back to me. I just want to look at myself. That's what I want my energy. That's what I want my gifts to be pushed toward. C.S. Lewis In his introduction to Paradise Lost, I read this a couple Tuesday nights ago, but it's really helpful. He says, to admire Satan is to give one's vote for a world of lies, propaganda, and I love this. This is the phrase that's gotten me, incessant autobiography. So so to kind of be one to Satan's side, the self-glory side, is to be given to lies, propaganda, and incessant autobiography. And he says, yet the choice is possible. What he's saying here is, don't you see how we're being deceived uh, by Satan's way or by the way of evil? Hardly a day passes without some slight movement toward it in every one of us. Sin in each of us is something that just wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives. It especially wants to be left by itself. It, it wants to keep well away from anything better or stronger, or higher than it. Anything that would make it feel small. But unimpeded, sin would exploit the whole universe if it could. Sin always wants to be the most important person in the room. Sin always wants to be the one that gets all the attention. Sin is always curving its energy back in on itself. It is so caught in this incessant autobiography. And of course, Lewis is writing this 70 years ago before Insta stories. But it even does this with God. It even says, how can I use God to my advantage? How can God help my story? And I think that's the difference between seeing Jesus in me and me in Jesus. Some of you may be here today and you, you have lived your life as a Christian, but your Christianity has been trying to leverage God for your own benefit rather than recognizing that he is the actual one that's worthy of glory, that he is actually the one that's in the center of the universe, and that your only hope is to be in him. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about you dying. It's this love of self. It's this self-attention that that has to be erased, that that has to be done away with. 
when the new self comes, there is an awareness of God. There is an attention towards God. There is a love for God. There is a heart of Christ that takes over in us. We talked about the person of Christ on Wednesday night in our theology class. And you know, the amazing thing about Jesus, he came to this earth. He was fully God. He, he was complete in his glory, yet he came as a man and lived his whole life pleasing the Father, obeying the Father, reflecting glory back to the Father. So if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old self-focused man is dead. The new or renewed God-focused man is alive. Now you may say, how does that happen? How does that happen? Can I just say, hey, go and be God-focused. You're dismissed. How does that happen? How do we get rid of this disease? How do we like quit the incurvatus and say? How are you, how do you die? How are you raised with Christ? And the answer is through faith. Again, that is a simple answer. But look, this, and this is where this passage can be so helpful. When you look at the cross, when you rightly look at the cross, and you rightly understand that Jesus who was totally worthy of all our praise. Jesus actually was at the center of the universe. When you rightly understand that he gave himself for you, that that he gave himself so that you could come in, so that you can be reconciled, it, it totally reorients your life. When you look at the cross, you feel both defeated and triumphant at the same time. You see your own sin and you realize that Jesus loves you. You feel both small, realizing that the God of the universe is so much greater and bigger than I am, but you feel big at the same time. You feel both defeated and triumphant. You feel both dead and alive. Look at verse 21 with me. This this might be one of the most helpful verses in all of the Bible. It says, For our sake, God, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, who I've already quoted, when he talked about this, Ryan mentioned this in his prayer, he he, he described this passage and others as the great exchange. He kind of talked about it like a math equation. I think I have some pictures here. Did those come through? I guess not. Oh, there we go. All right. So, On the one hand, you have Jesus who never sinned. And if if you've never sinned, if you've only done what was right all the time, you deserve a reward. Justice would call for reward. And then on the other hand, you have us who has sinned, who has disobeyed God. and, and, And in a perfectly just and righteous world, justice would call for punishment. This, this is the, the level of justice or the, the balance of justice being called out. You know, have you ever done something? Have you ever gone the extra mile and done something really, really well and done something really, really good and nobody noticed it, right? Like you ever have in school where you turn in the assignment that you think is really important and then in the end, like everybody gets an A, but you worked really hard on it. Like that was like the one assignment that semester that you worked really hard on. And then the teacher's like, ah, the assignment, it was just a pass-fail, you know. And you're like, oh. 
You know, or at work, you know, sometimes you work really hard on something. You're the one that makes the deal happen. And the boss comes in and like, thanks the other guy, you know, and you're like, but, uh, you know, or on the other hand, have, has someone ever done something terribly wrong to you? They've hurt you deeply. They've done something that was improper. They've done something that was incredibly bad, incredibly unjust, and nobody ever notices it, right? They don't get in trouble for it. They don't get punished for it. They get away with it. The the reason those things that I'm talking about, the reason those things feel so bad is that when that happens, what I'm talking about, it's an imbalance of justice, right? Where there is no sin, where there is righteousness, there should be reward. Where there is sin, where there is disobedience, there should be punishment. If you will, the the checkbook hasn't been balanced of justice when those things happen. You know there's a discrepancy in the balance of the checkbook. But look, here's the good news. With God, there is never an imbalance. God is going to, because he knows everything and because he's all powerful, he's going to rightly and completely settle all accounts of justice. Now, the problem for us, let's go back to our math equation. The problem for us, again, is that we're not this. We felt we have felt sin. We have definitely been the victim of sin, but, but none of us stand here with our hands clean. We are this. And, and what we rightly deserve is to be punished by a holy God. But the amazing thing about the gospel and justification by faith is that Jesus, who never sinned, who knew no sin, who was totally righteous, as this text says, was made to be your sin. Jesus took on our record of sin. All of the sin that we had done before God, Jesus took on and in our place was punished. So that we, let's go to the next slide here, so that we in him, by faith in him, could not be punished, but rather be rewarded. Jesus was punished. We are rewarded. And this is what Luther called the great exchange. And what an exchange it is. That Jesus, we can go to the next slide here, in his death on the cross, let's go to the next slide. Jesus has canceled out sin. He has canceled out our punishment by taking on our sin, by being punished so that we in him could be, as this text says, reconciled back to God. There's no distance between us and God. If you really believe that, if you really believe that, that Jesus, again, as I said, who's actually worthy of worship, who's actually at the center of the universe, has taken on your record of sin and died a holy death before God in your place, if you really believe that, it will change you. If there is really a God who is so good and so merciful and so loving, if there is a God who has demonstrated that for you, it will change you. You will begin to forget about your autobiography. Your soul won't so quickly turn in on itself. You'll find yourself getting lost in the love of God. You'll find yourself truly triumphant in God's love, not in a dutiful way or a fearful way, but in a joyful way. Uh, To quote the old hymn writer, perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love. Are you in Christ? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come 
All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, there, there may be a lot of you who have prayed a prayer along the way because a preacher said, if you pray this prayer, you won't go to hell. I just want to tell you, who wouldn't pray that prayer? Even if you didn't believe it, you'd be like, well, you know, I'll give 10 seconds to pray the prayer. <laughs> you know, it's worth it. There are some of you who have seen Jesus along the way as someone who can help you. You've taken uh, practical wisdom uh, from the Bible along the way. Of course, who doesn't want practical wisdom? None of that makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is being found in Christ. Is the, the, the self-incessant autobiography being put to death and seeing the story of Christ come alive in you. Are you in Christ? Are you in his story? Or do you just occasionally call out to him? Can you really say that you know God, that you've been reconciled to God? And if you have, then as this passage says, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which brings us to the second half of this. So let's go back to our main sentence here. We've been reconciled to God and have been called by God, um, and we are people who now are called to help reconcile others with God. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The hope of this reconciliation is for the whole world, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors For Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If if this is really happening, if you've really been reconciled to God, it's not going to be hard for you to be an ambassador. You know, it's not hard for me to talk about Paige because I love Paige. I'm crazy about Paige. I'm, I'm she's my wife. We're, we're, I'm in with Paige. I'm a part of, of her. It's not hard for me to talk about Christ's covenant, right? Because I'm in. I love you guys. I'm in this thing. I'm so proud of this church. I love talking about this church. As many of you know, it's not hard for me to talk about Auburn, right? Auburn has been a part of my life since I was a child. Some of my very best memories are on the plains. I am in the Auburn family. It's easy for me to be an ambassador for these things because I am in. And if you are in Christ, you are called to be an ambassador for him. Now, again, this is something that we talk about a lot here at Christ's Covenant. What does it mean to be an ambassador? What does it mean to be a kingdom ambassador as we talk about it? And so what is an ambassador? Well, an ambassador, I think I have a definition up here, is a citizen of one country who makes an appeal for that country to people in another country, right? An ambassador is a citizen of one country and all of their wealth and prosperity and security and culture and language, all of that comes from their home country, But for a time, they're living in another country, making an appeal on behalf of their home country to this other country. They are part of one country. They identify with one country, but they're living in another country. And being an ambassador for a powerful country is an amazing thing. I mean, if you are an ambassador for the United States, there's a lot of security in that. You know that there's a lot of wealth in the United States. There's a lot of security. There's laws. There's, 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 there's great people in the United States. The most powerful military in the world is there to protect you. Your family can be safe in the United States. 
And so you can be in the other country as an ambassador for a powerful home country. You can be in that other country serving freely, giving to them without expecting anything in return. Because you have such a strong home country, you can actually work for the good of the country that you have been called to. And don't you see, if you are in Christ, this is who you are. You've died with him. You were raised with him. You're a new creation now. Colossians 1, you have been raised. You are seated with Christ. You are citizens of this never-ending, powerful, eternal kingdom of Christ. As he was raised, you are raised. As he is seated, you are seated. Now, if you notice in these passages, it doesn't even talk about these things in the past tense. It doesn't say you will be raised. It says, no, you are raised. Just as Jesus has been raised, just as Jesus has been seated, so you are seated. And if this seems strange, this shouldn't seem strange to you. What this is talking about is having a a vicarious identity through faith. And this is what it means to be a Christian. We, We vicariously identify with Christ through our faith in Christ. If you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan, if you're a San Francisco 49ers fan, if I said, hey, Kansas City Chiefs fan, you know, tell me about today. And you know what you're going to say? You're saying, we're playing in the Super Bowl today. Now, if you're a Chiefs fan, do we have any actual Chiefs fans here? Like, is there, or 49ers fans? Anyone? One? No one? All right, we got, we got one. Which, which team? All right. We have an actual Chiefs fan. So you're saying, hey, we're playing in the Super Bowl today. Congratulations. But you know what? You're not really playing in the Super Bowl today. You're not in Miami right now. You're here, but you have vicariously identified. You have identified through faith, if you will, with the chiefs, even though you're not physically there with them in Miami, you're physically here, but we know your heart is there, right? That's what this is saying. It's saying, look, if you're in Christ, your identity, even though you're physically not raised with Christ, even though you're physically not seated with Christ yet, one day you will be, but right now, You are with him. That is your primary identity. That is your true citizenship. That is who you really are. And now, because you have such a strong place then, you can actually live and work for the good of the kingdom of Christ and for the good of others around you wherever God has planted you here. That's what it means to be an ambassador with Christ. And if that's true of you, if you really are seated with God... And you know what else? And you know what? You won't, you won't use all your talents and gifts for yourself all the time anymore. You won't spend all your money on yourself. You won't spend all your time. You'll actually be concerned about the people that Christ has called you to reconcile with himself. You'll actually look toward others. You'll actually be able to serve others. You'll actually be able to love others without needing anything in return you'll actually be able to be taken advantage of because you already have everything in Christ. You see people people say, well, I don't do that because I don't want to be taken advantage of. Look, if you you have an outward-facing life, you're going to get taken advantage of. I'm not saying be stupid, be wise. But we live in an evil world. But if you're seated with Christ, who cares? Don't do it it again. (laughs) But give yourself away. You can be bold. You can take risks. Don't you see God's plan for his church? Don't you see who you are? 
Don't you see her so much more than just people who are supposed to go to an event every week? That's so little. That's so nothing. We're people who sometimes gather. We must gather. We need to gather. As we say here, if you don't gather well, you won't scatter well. You'll forget who you are. You, you won't be edified. You won't be built up. You won't rightly worship the Lord. But we are a people who scatter. And when we scatter, we scatter as ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so I want to spend just the rest of our time, and we're almost done, quickly what does this appeal look like? And I got three questions here. To whom are we appealing? How do we make this appeal? And then lastly, what is the appeal? So to whom are we appealing? If you remember a few weeks ago, when we talked about the Great Commission, we talked about the verb, right? A lot of people think the verb in that sentence is go, but what is the verb? Make or to make disciples or to disciple, right? Go in that verse, Matthew 28, is actually a participle. Participle? is a verb form word that acts as an adjective or adverb, in this case, an adverb that describes the verb to make or to make disciples. So it's, it's a participle basically saying, as you are going, make disciples. And so I would say that to you. Where has God placed you? Where do you live? Where do you work? Who are you around? As you are going, God is putting people in your path and calling you to make an appeal to them. You are God's ambassador to those People, Who has God brought along in your path? Now, occasionally, as you're doing that, as you're living that out, God may put a burden on you for people that have no access, right? We, we talk about mission trips. We talk about missionaries. I pray that some of you would feel called to places around the world where there is little to no access to the gospel. That's our hope. We would be ascending church. Some of you are going to be called away from Atlanta to move to places, to be an ambassador in a place where there, there, there are very few gospel lights. But most of you are going to, or God has called to be faithful ambassadors right here. Secondly, how do we make this appeal? How do we appeal? How are we ambassadors? Well, there's three things you need if you want to be a good, at least three things, if you want to be a good ambassador. Influence, credibility, and people have to be listening. So let me talk about this real quick. If you want to be an ambassador for Christ, you have to have some influence. And what I would say is this is you need relationships with people. You need friendships. You need to know people. You need to be in people's lives. And you need to do something useful, right? This is why you guys are so much better equipped than I am. I want you to hear this. To be an ambassador. Because you actually do something that's useful. People that don't know the Lord have no use for me. I'm a Christian preacher, right? If you're like a secular atheist, I, I'm not only not useful, I, I'm evil, right? But you know what you guys are? Y'all are like doctors and teachers and business people and salespeople. You, you're doing useful things. You have influence. Don't you see and so that's all the more important. There's so much about the Bible about doing your work well. Why? Because do something useful. Go serve people. And through your usefulness, God is actually going to put people in your path that you can make an appeal for God on God's behalf to them. Be useful. Build relationships. And last year, or secondly, you need credibility. Credibility is this. It's, it's when your life lines up with your words. You know, Purity and holiness is so important. 
for who we are as ambassadors because we, we must have credibility in the world. Living out the way of Christ is so important because we have to have credibility. On, on Thursday night, we had the Spotted Cows, an amazing event. Men, well done. We had 100 men come out. They were vulnerable. We ate tons of meat. We had huge fires. It was great. But we talked about this. Our topic was failure. Failure is a very interesting thing for men to talk about. None of us want to admit that we failed, but we've all failed. And one of the things, Wallace Francis said something very interesting. He said, look, the, the reason that I hate failure so much is that I hate rejection. A very vulnerable and good thing to say. Because everybody wants to be with a winner, right? When you're winning, everybody loves you. When you're failing, no one loves you. And, and you know, the amazing thing about the gospel is this, is that Jesus most often meets us in our failures. That's when he comes to us. That's when we can recognize him. Jesus pursues us even though we failed. You know, God demonstrates his love for us in this. Even though we were sinners, Christ died for us. He, he's like the only guy that goes after the biggest loser in the room. You know? But if you really know Jesus, if you really know Jesus, you'll be like that. You'll start to take on his character. Christ will be in you. All your relationships won't be with people that can benefit you. In fact, you'll pursue people that have nothing to give to you. You'll find the outcast. You'll find the marginalized. You'll find the person that it might even threaten your potential for getting a promotion if people knew you were hanging out with them too much. Because that's the kind of stuff that Jesus does. And as you start doing that, you know what? The gospel will be demonstrated in you. And when you start to say, I believe in a God who pursues me even in my failure, people will listen. That's credibility. And then last thing, if you want to, if God wants, to, if you want to make a good appeal for God, people have to be listening. And I say, okay, well, how do I do that? Charles Taylor, who has written a lot about Christians in the secular world, says that Christians need to look for the thin places in the culture. And this is important. There's thin places all around. As you're looking to make an appeal for Christ, you have, to, you have to keep your eyes open for the thin places. So, for example, a secular worldview doesn't have a very satisfying answer for death. If death is, I die and I decay, and that's the end, nobody really believes that. Everybody wants to live on. Everybody wants to have a legacy. Even the most atheistic person I know says, I want to have a name. I want to impact the world in an ongoing way. Everybody kind of understands. You know, the Bible says God has put eternity in the heart of every man, right? So it's just kind of in us. And a secular world doesn't have a satisfying answer for death. So even like this week with uh, the death of Kobe Bryant, right? That's a thin place. That's a, that's a way where your, your faith, where God can actually start making an appeal through you. There's a place people are thinking about death. 41-year-old dies. The other 41s are in. You're like, oh, that could happen to me. You know, the secular world doesn't really have a good answer for morality and truth, right? In a truly secular world, morality is defined by those who are powerful. Nobody really believes that, right? Nobody really wants that to be true. But that's a thin place where the secular worldview doesn't really have a good answer. And so again, the impeachment trial, right? A great thin place in the world where if you're really an ambassador for Christ, that's a thin place where God can actually make an appeal for himself through you. Now, I know that I'm just tipping the iceberg there. This is a great thing. This is why we do the sermon talkback. I'll talk more about this on the sermon talkback. We have this little podcast. How do you make an appeal in the thin places? But people have to be listening, and, and I want to just say this. If you're aware, there's a lot of places where people 
are listening. And then the last thing, we've talked about to whom are we appealing, how do we appeal, but lastly, what is the appeal? And very simply, you know what the appeal is? Be reconciled to God. We, we kind of read through that. But do you, do, you, do you hear what the appeal is? Do you hear what the offer is? Know God. Be reconciled to God. Know God. Know the Almighty. What an appeal. What an offer. You were made to be in God's story. I was made to be in God's story, but sin has so disoriented our lives and our hearts that we, we are stuck in this incessant autobiography with our desires and passions curving in on themselves. But Christ has come to set us free for that if we look to him, if we find ourselves in him. A few weeks ago, we said, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to find yourself in Christ? We said, learning to obey everything that he has commanded and being baptized. If you were here, I talked about the Great Commission. And, and these things are so important because they invite us into the story. But another way that God invites us into this story, that we remember who we are in Christ, is the Lord's Supper. I love that God has given this to us because it is a way to invite us in where we, where we literally find ourselves like people for centuries have found themselves in the story of God. When you take the Lord's Supper here in a few moments, there is a sense where you're identifying with the people of Israel on the night of the Passover who had blood smeared on the doorposts of their house, who outside of their house heard the screams of the Egyptians as death was all over their household, but they knew that they were safe. Why? Because the blood was covering their house. As you eat and as you drink, just as they were eating and drinking, you can identify with those people, the kind of people who have been covered by the grace of God. You know, when you take this meal, you can identify with the people, the disciples of Jesus, who when he sat down with them said, this is my body and this is my blood broken for you and spilled out, who then the next day he actually hung on a cross in their place. He actually suffered and died in their very midst. And you can realize that, that Jesus has done this for me. And another thing, when we take this meal, we can identify with who we will be in the future, who we will be on the day when we're literally eating and drinking with our Lord in his kingdom forever and forever, when, when, we're, when we don't need faith anymore. Right now we identify with Christ through faith, but one day we will identify with him through sight. We will be with him. And so we take this meal to keep our faith strong. And so here in a few moments, I wanna invite you, if you are in Christ, I want to invite you to take this meal as a reminder of who you are. And I want to invite anybody here, if, if, if some of what I said today has been new to you, if it's caused questions in your heart, if, it, if it's given you a desire to know more about Jesus, I, nothing would make me happier than to engage with you, to pray with you, to answer questions. I'm going to be standing back uh, in, by the sound booth. Um, one of our other pastors is going to be over here on this side, uh, Lou Priolo and and Andrew Atkins and, and his wife, Jamie, will be standing over here. Just as you, as people are getting up to take the Lord's Supper, just come and find one of us. We would love the opportunity uh, to just engage with you.